Thank you for viewing this Life to Tape video. Life to Tape is part of Fotations, and if you'd like to help, you can visit FotationsDonation.com, where there are ways you can support financially or by donating equipment. If you'd also like to support on social media, that helps out a lot. There's more information on our social media accounts in the links below. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hello, this is the return of the Fotations Life to Tape podcast. We are continuing where we left off with the Junior Classics Volume 1, Fairy and Wonder Tales. And this is The Flying Trunk by Hans Christian Andersen. There was once a merchant who was so rich that he could have paid the whole st- paved the whole street with gold and almost have enough left for a little lane, but he did not do that. He knew how to employ his money differently. When he spent a shilling, he got back a crown. Such a clever merchant he was he, and this continued till he died. His son now got all this money, and he lived merrily, going to masquerade every evening, making kites out of dollar notes and playing at ducks and drakes on the sea coast with gold pieces instead of pebbles. In this way, the monies might soon be spent, and indeed it was so. At last he had no more than four shillings left, and no clothes to wear but a pair of slippers and an old dressing gown. Now his friends did not trouble themselves any more about him as they could not walk with him in the streets, but one of them, who was good-natured, sent him an old trunk with the remark, Pack up. Yes, that was all very well, but he had nothing to pack, therefore he seated himself in the trunk. It was a wonderful trunk, so soon as anyone pressed the lock, the trunk could fly. He pressed it and with and whirl. Away flew the trunk with him through the chimney and over the clouds, farther and farther away. But as often as the bottom of the trunk cracked a little, he was in great fear, lest it might go to pieces, and then he would have flung a fine somersault. In that way, he came to the land of the Turks. He hid the trunk in the woods under some dry leaves, and then went into the town. He could do that very well, for among the Turks all the people went about dressed like himself, in dressing grounds and slippers. Then he met a nurse with a little child. Here, you Turkish nurse, he began, what kind of great castle is that close by your town, in which the meadows are so high up? Those dwells the sultan's daughter, replied she. It is over it is prophesied that she will be very unhappy respecting a lover, and therefore nobody may go near her, unless the sultan and the sultana are there too. Thank you, said the merchant's son, and he went out into the forest and seated himself in the trunk, flew on the roof, and crept through the window into the prince's room. She was lying deep asleep on the sofa, and she was so beautiful that the merchant's son compelled to kiss her. Then she awoke and was startled very much, but he had but he had said was a Turkish angle who had come down to her through the air, and that pleased her. They sat down side by side, and he told her stories about her eyes, and he told her that they were the most glorious dark lakes, and that thoughts were swimming about in them like mermaids, and he told her about her forehead that was a snowy mountain with the most splendid halls and pictures, and he told her about the storks who bring the lovely little children. Yes, those were fine histories, 
Then he asked the princess if she would marry him, and she said yes directly. But you must come here on a Saturday, said she. Then the sultan and sultana will be here to tea. They will be very proud that I am to marry a Turkish angel. But take care that you know a very pretty story, for both my parents are very fond indeed of stories. My mother likes them high-flown and moral, but my father likes them merry so that one can laugh. Yes, I shall bring no marriage gift but a story, said he, and so they parted. But the princess gave him a saber, the sheath embroidered with gold pieces that was very useful to him. Now he flew away, brought a new dressing gown, and sat in the forest and made up a story. It was to be ready by Saturday, and that was not an easy thing. By the time he had finished it, Saturday had come. The sultan and his wife and the court were at the princess's tea, tea. He, re- he received very he was received very graciously. Will you relate us a story? said the sultana, one that is deep and edifying. Yes, but one that we can laugh at, said the sultan. Certainly, he replied, and so began. Now listen well. There was a bundle of matches, and these matches were particularly proud of their high descent, their genealogical tree. The genealogical tree, that is to say, the great fir tree of which each of them was a little splinter, had been a great old tree out in the forest. The matches now lay between the tinder box and an old iron pot, and they were telling about the days of their youth. Yes, when we were upon the green bows, he said, then were really upon the green bows. Every morning and evening there was a de- Diamond tea for us, I mean dew, and we had sunshine all day long whenever the sun shone, and the little birds had to tell stories. We could see very well that we were rich, and the other trees were only dressed out in summer, while our family had the means to grow green dresses in the winter as well. But then the woodcutter came, and like a great revolution, our family was broken up. The head of the family got an appointment as manifest for the first-rate ship, which could sail around the world if necessary. The other branches went to other places, and now we have the office of kindling, a light for the vulgar herd. That's how we grand people came to be in the kitchen. My fate was of different kind, said the iron pot, which stood next to the matches. From the beginning, ever since I came into the world, there has been a great deal of scourging and cooking done in me. I look after the practical part, and I am the first here in the house. My only pleasure is to sit in my place after dinner, very clean and neat, and to carry on a sensible conversation with my comrades. But except the water pot, which is sometimes taken down into the courtyard, we've always lived within our four walls. Only our newsmonger is the market basket, but he speaks very uneasily about the government and the people. Yes, the other day there was an old pot that fell down from fright and burst. He's liberal, I, I can tell you. Now you're talking too much. The tinderbox interrupted, and the steel struck against the flint so that sparks flew out. Shall we not have a merry evening? Yes, let us talk about who is the grandest, said the matches. No, I do not like to talk about myself, retorted the pot. Let us get up an evening entertainment. I will begin and tell you a story from real life, something that everyone 
has experienced so that we can easily imagine a situation and take pleasure in it on the Baltic by the Danish shore. That's a pretty beginning, cried the plates. That will be a story we shall like. Yes, it happened to me in my youth. When I lived in a family, there were furnitures where the furniture was polished, the floors scored, and new curtains were put up every fortnight. What an interesting way you have of telling the story, said the carpet broom. One can tell directly that the man is speaking who has been in a woman's society. There is something pure runs through it. And the pot went on telling the story, and at the end of the good as the beginning. All the plates rattled with joy, and the carpet broom brought up some green parsley out of a dust hole and put it like a wreath on the pot, for he knew it would be it would vex the others. If I crown him today, it thought he will crown me tomorrow. Now I dance, said the fire tongs, and they danced and preserve us how that implement could lift up one leg. The old chair cushion burst to see it. Shall I be crowned too? That the tongs, and indeed a wreath was awarded. There's only common people, after all, thought the matches. Now the tea urn was to sing, but she said she had taken cold and could not sing unless she felt boiling within, but that was only affection. She did not want to sing, except when she was in the parlor with the grand people. In the window sat the old quill pen, with which the maid generally wrote. She, there was nothing remarkable about this pen, except that it had dipped too deep into the ink, but she was proud of that. If the tea urn won't sing, she said, she may leave it alone. Outside hangs the nightingale in a cage, and he can sing. He hasn't any education, but the evening will say nothing about that. I think it's very wrong, said the tea kettle. He was the kitchen singer and half-brother to the tea urn that the rich and foreign bird should be listened to. Is it that patriotic? Let the market basket decide. I am vexed, said the market basket. No one can imagine how much I secretly vexed. That is the proper way of spending the evening. Would it not be more sensible to put the house in order? Let us each go into his own place, and I will arrange the whole game. That would be quite another thing. Yes, let us make a disturbance, cried all. Then the door opened, and the maid came in, and they all stood still. No one stirred, but there was not one pot among them that did not know where he could do and how grand he was. Yes, if I had liked each one, if I had liked each one, thought, it might have been a very merry evening. The servant girl took the matches and lighted the fire with them. Mercy, how they sputtered and burst out into the flames. Now everyone can see, thought they, that we are the first. How we shine, what a light, and they burned out. That was a capital story, said the sultana. I feel myself quite carried away to the kitchen, to the matches. Yes, now thou shalt marry our daughter? Yes, certainly, said the sultan. Thou shalt marry our daughter on Monday. And they called out thou, because he was to belong to the family. The wedding was decided on, and the evening before it, the whole city was illuminated. Biscuits and cakes were thrown among the people, and the street boys stood on their toes, called out hurrah, and whistled on their fingers. It was uncommonly splendid. Yes, I shall have to give something as a treat, thought the merchant's son. 
So he brought rockets and crackers and everything imaginable short of firework, put them all into his trunk, and flew up into the air. Crack how they went, and how they went off. All the Turks hopped up with such a start that the slippers flew about their ears. Such a meteor they had never yet seen. Now they could understand that it must be a Turkish angel who was going to marry the princess. What stories people tell, everyone whom he asked about it had seen it in a separate way, but the one and all thought it fine. I saw the Turkish angel himself, said one. He had eyes like glowing stars and a beard like foaming water. He flew up a fiery mantle, said another. The most lovely little cherub peeped forth from among the folds. Yes, they were wonderful things that he heard on the following day he was to be married. Now he went back to the forest to rest himself in the trunk, but what had become of that? A spark from the fireworks he had set fire to it, and the trunk burned to ashes. He could not fly any more, and could not get to his bride. She stood on the day of the roof waiting, and most likely she is still waiting, but he wanders through the world telling fairy tales, but they are not so merry as the ones he told about the matches. The Darling Needle by Hans Christian Andersen There was once a darling needle who thought herself so fine she imagined she was an embroidery needle. Take care and mind you hold me tight, she said to the fingers that took her out. Don't let me fall. If I fall on the ground, I shall certainly never be found again, for I am fine. That as it may be, said the fingers, and they grasped around, they grasped round the body. See, I am coming with a train, said the darling needle, and she drew a long thread after her, but there was no knot in the thread. The fingers pointed the needle just as the cook's slipper, in which the upper leather had burst and had to be sewn together. That's vulgar work, said the darling needle. I shall never get through. I'm breaking, I'm breaking, and she really broke. Did I not say so, said the darling needle? I am too fine. Now it's quite useless, said the fingers, but they were obliged to hold her fast. All the same, for the cook dropped some sealing wax upon the needle and pinned her handkerchief together with it in front. So now I am a breastpin, said the darling needle. I knew something very well that I should come to honor. When one is something, one comes to something. And she laughed quietly to herself. One can never see when a darling needle laughs. There she sat, as proud as if she was a state coach, and looked all about her. May I be permitted to ask if you are of gold? She inquired of the pin, her neighbor. You have a very pretty appearance and a particular head, but it is only a little. You must take pins to grow, for it is not everyone that has sealing wax dropped upon him. And the darling needle drew herself up so proudly that she fell out of the handkerchief right into the sink, which the cook was rinsing out. Now we are going on a journey, said the darling needle. If only I don't get lost. But she really was lost. I am too fine for this world, she observed, as she lay in the gutter. But I know who I am, and there's always something in that. So the darling needle kept her proud behavior and did not lose her good humor, and as things of many kinds swam over her, chips and straws and pieces of old newspaper, 
Only look at how they sail, said the darling needle. They don't know what is under them. I'm here. I remain firmly here. See, there goes a chip, thinking of nothing in the world but himself a chip. There's a straw going by now. How he turns, how he twirls about. Don't think only of yourself. You might easily run up against a stone. There swims a bit of newspaper. What's written upon it has long been forgotten, and yet it gives itself airs. I sit quietly and patiently here. I know who I am, and I shall remain what I am. One morning, something lay close beside her that glittered splendidly. Then the darling needle believed that it was a diamond, but it was a bit of a broken bottle, and because it shone, the darling needle spoke to it, introducing to herself as a breastpin. I suppose you are a diamond, she observed. Why, yes, something of that kind. And then each believed the other to be a very valuable thing, and they began speaking about the world and how very conceited it was. I have been in a lady's box, said the darling needle, and this lady was a cook. She had five fingers on each hand, and I never saw anything so conceited about those five fingers, and yet they were only there that they might take me out of a box and put me back into it. Were there any good bursts? asked the bit of bottle. No, indeed, cried the darling needle, but very hauntingly there were five brothers, all of the finger family. They kept very proudly together, though they were all different lengths, and upmost the thumbling was short and fat. He walked he walked out in front of the ranks and only had one joint in his back, and could only make a single bow. But he said that if he were hacked off by a man, that the man was useless for service in war. Dainty Mouth, the second finger, thrust himself into sweat and sour, pointed to the sun and moon, and gave the impression when they wrote. Long Ran, the third, looked at all the others over his shoulder. Gold Broder, the fourth, went about with a golden belt round his waist, and a little playman did nothing at all, and was proud of it. There was nothing but bragging among them, and therefore I went away. And now we sit here in the glitter, said the bottle, said the bit of a bottle. At that moment, more water came into the gutter, and so that it overflowed, and the bit of the bottle was carried away. He, so he was disposed of, observed the darling needle. I remain here. I am too fine. But that's my pride, and my pride is honorable. And proudly she sat there and had many great thoughts. I could almost believe if I had been born of a sunbeam. I'm so fine. It really appears as if the sunbeams were always seeking for me under the water. Ah, I am so fine that my mother cannot find me. If I had an old eye which broke off, I think I should cry. But no, I should not do that. It's not gentle to cry. One day a couple of sheep boys laughing, rubbing in the gutter when they found where they sometimes find old nails, farthings or similar treasures. It was dirty work but they get good it was dirty work, but they get great delight of it. Oh cry one cried, who picked himself with the darling needle. There's a fellow for you. I'm not a fellow, I'm a young lady, said the darling needle. But nobody listened to her. The sealing wax had come off, and she had turned black. But black makes one look slender, 
and she thought herself finer than ever before. Here comes the eggshell sailing along, said the boys, and they struck the darling needle fast in the eggshell. White walls and black myself. Looks very well, remarked the darling needle. Now that one can see me, I only hope I shall not be seasick. But she was not seasick at all. It is very good against seasickness if one has a steel stomach and does not forget that one is a little more than an ordinary person. Now my seasickness is over. The finer one is more than one can bear. Crack went the eggshell, for the wagon went over her. Good heavens, how it crushed me, said the darling needle. I'm getting seasick now. I'm quite sick. But she was not really sick, though the wagon went over her. She lay there at full length, where, and there she may lie. Pen and Inkstand by Hans Christian Andersen The following remark was made in a poet's room as the speaker looked at the inkstand that stood upon his table. It is marvelous all that can come out of that inkstand. What will it produce next? Yes, it is marvelous. So it is, exclaimed the inkstand. It is incomprehensible. That is, I say, it is thus the inkstand addresses itself to the pen and to everything else that could hear upon the table. It is really astonishing all that can come from me. It is most incredible. I positively do not know myself what the next thing may be where a person begins to dip into me. One drop of me serves half a side of paper, and what may not then appear upon it, I am certain something extraordinary. From me processed all the works of the poets, these animated beings, whom people think they recognize these deep feelings, that gay humor, these charming descriptions of nature. I do not understand then them myself, for I know nothing about nature, but still it is all in me. From me have gone forth, and still go forth, these warring hosts, these lovely maidens, these bold knights on sorting steeds, these droll characters in a humble life. The fact is, however, that I do not know anything about them myself. I assure you they are not my they are not my ideas. You are right there, replied the pen. You have few ideas and do not trouble yourself much with thinking. If you did exert yourself to think, you would perceive that you ought to give something that was not dry. You supply me with the means of committing to paper what I have in me. I write with that. It is the pen that writes. Mankind do no doubt that. And most men have about as much genius for poetry as an old inkstand. You have but little experience, said the inkstand. You have scarcely been a week in use, and you are already half worn out. Do you fancy that you are a poet? You are only half servant, and I have many of your kind before you came many of the Goose family and the English manufacturer. I know both quill pens and steel pens. I had a great many in my service, and I shall have many more still, when he, the man who stirs me up, comes and puts down what he takes from me. I shall like very much to know what will be the next thing he will take from me. Inktub, said the pen. Later in the evening, the poet returned home. He had been at a concert and had heard a celebrated violin player and was quite enchanted with his wonderful performance. It had been a complete gush of melody that he had drawn from the instrument. Sometimes it seemed like a gentle murmur 
of rippling steam, sometimes like the singing of a bird, sometimes like the tempest sweeping through the mighty pine forest. He fancied he heard his own heart weep, but in the sweetest tones that can be heard in the woman's charming voice, it seemed as if not only the strings of the violin made music, but its bridge, its pegs, and its sounding board. It was all astonishing. The piece had a most difficult one, but it seemed like play as if the bows were wandering capaciously over the strings. Such was the appearance of facility that everyone might be supposed he could do it. The violin seemed to sound itself, the bow play of itself. These two seemed to do it all. One forgot the master who gilded them, who gave them life and soul. Yes, they forgot the master, but the poet thought of him. He named him and wrote down his thoughts as follows. How foolish it would be of the violin and bow were they to be in vain of their performance. And yet this is what often we of the human species are. Poets, artists, those who make discoveries in science, military, and naval commanders. We are all proud of ourselves, and yet we are only the instrument in our Lord's hands. To him alone be the glory. We have nothing to arrogant to ourselves. This was what the poet wrote, and he headed it with the master and the instruments. Well, madam, said the pen to the inkstand when they were alone again, you heard him read aloud what I had written. Yes, what I have gave you to write, said the inkstand. It was a hit at you for your conceit. Strange that you cannot see that people make fools of you. I gave you that hint pretty cleverly. I confess thought it was rather malish. And colder, cried the pen. Writing stick, cried the inkstand. They both felt assured that they had answered well, and it is a pleasant reflection that one has made a very smart reply, sleeps comfortably after it, and they both went to sleep, but the poet could not sleep. His thoughts wielded forth, like tones from the violin, trilling like pearls, rushing like storms through the forest. He recognized the feeling of his own heart. He perceived the gleam from the everlasting master. To him alone be the glory. Cinderella, retold by Miss Moloch. There was once an honest gentleman who took for his second wife a lady, the proudest and most disagreeable in the whole country. She had two daughters exactly like herself in all things. He also had one girl who resembled her dead mother, the best woman in all the world, Scarcely had the second marriage taken place than the stepmother became jealous of the good qualities of the little girl, who was so great a contrast to her own two daughters she gave her all the menial occupations of the house, compelling her to wash the floors and the staircase, to dust the bedroom and clean the grates, and while her sisters occupied carpeted chambers, hung with mirrors, they couldn't see themselves from head to foot. This poor little damsel was sent to sleep in the attic on an old straw mattress with only one chair and not a looking-glass in the room. She suffered all in silence, not daring to complain to her father, who was entirely ruled by his new wife. When her daily work was done, she used to sit down in the chimney corner among the ashes from which the two sisters gave her the nickname Cinderella. But Cinderella, however shabbily clad, was handsomer than they were 
with all their fine clothes. It happened that the king's son gave a series of balls to which were invited the ranks of fashion of the city, and among the rest of the two elder sisters they were very proud and happy, and occupied their whole time in deciding what they would wear, a source of new trouble to Cinderella, whose duty it was to get up their fine linen and laces, and who never could please him, however much she tried. They tried, they talked of nothing but their clothes. I, said the elder, shall wear a velvet gown and my trimmings of English lace, and I, added the younger, will have but my ordinary silk petticoat, but I shall adorn it with the upper skirt of flowered brocadins, and shall put on my diamond tiara, which is a great deal finer than anything of yours. Here the elder sister grew angry, and the dispute began to run so high that Cinderella, who was known to excel to excellent taste, was called upon to decide between them. She gave them the best advice she could, and gently and submissively offered to dress them herself, and especially to arrange their hair, and compliment it in which she excelled, many a noted chauffeur. The important evening came, and she exercised all her skills to adorn the two ladies. While she was combing out the elder's hair, this ill-natured girl said sharply, Cinderella, do you not wish you were going to the ball? Ah, madam, they are obliged to always say, madam, you are only mocking me. It is not my fortune to have any such pleasure. You are right. People only laugh to see a little cinder wretch at the ball. Any other than any other than Cinderella would have dressed the hair all awry, but she was good, and dressed it as perfectly even and smooth as prettily as she could. The sisters had scarcely eaten for two days, and had broken a dozen stay laces a day, and trying to make themselves slender, but tonight they broke a dozen more, and lost their tempers over and over again before they had completed their toilet which at last a happy moment arrived, Cinderella followed them to the coach, and after had whirled away, she sat down by the kitchen fire and cried. Immediately her godmother, who was a fairy, appeared beside her. What are you crying for, little maid? Oh, I wish, I wish, her sobs stopped her. You wish you could go to the ball, isn't it so? Cinderella nodded. Well then, be a girl, girl, and you shall go. First run into the garden and fetch me the largest pumpkin you can find. Cinderella did not comprehend what this had to do with her going to the ball, but being innocent and obliging, she went. Her godmother took the pumpkin, and having scooped out all the inside, struck it with her wand, and it became a splendid gilded coach, lined with rose-claden satin. Now fetch me a mouse trap out of the pantry, my dear. Cinderella brought it, and it contained six of the fattest, sleekest mice. The fairy lifted up the wire door, and as each mouse ran out, she struck it and it changed into a beautiful black horse. But what shall I do for your coachman, Cinderella? Cinderella suggested that she had seen a large black rat in the rat trap, and he might do, he might do for want of better. You are right. Go and look for him. And he was found, and the fairy made him into the most respectable coachman, with the finest whiskers imaginable. She afterward took six lizards from behind the pumpkin frame, and changed them into six footmen, all in splendid livery, immediately jumped up from the carriage, 
as if they had been footmen all their days. Well, Cinderella, now you can go to the ball. What? In these clothes, said Cinderella, piteously, looking down at her ragged frock. Her godmother laughed and touched her also with the wand, at which the wretched threadbare jacket became stiff with gold and sparkling with jewels. Her wooden petticoat lengthened, her woolen petticoat lengthened into a gown of sweeping satin, from underneath which peeped out of her little feet, no longer bare, but covered with silk stockings, the prettiest glass slippers in the world. Now, Cinderella, depart, but remember, if you stay one instant after midnight, your carriage will become a pumpkin, and your coachman a rat, and your horses mice, and your footman lizard, while you yourself will be the little cinder wretch you were an hour ago. Cinderella promised without fear. Her heart was so full of joy. Arrived at the palace, the king's son, who someone probably the fairy had told to wait the coming of an uninvited princess whom nobody knew was standing at the entrance ready to receive her he offered her his hand and led her with the most utmost courtesy through the, the assembled guests who stood aside to let her pass whispering to one another oh how beautiful she is it might have turned the heads of any one but poor cinderella who was so used to being despised that she took it as it all as if something happened in a dream. Her triumph was complete. Even the old king said to the queen that never since her majesty's young days had he seen so charming and elegant a person. All the court ladies scanned her eagerly, close and all, determining to have their made theirs made the next day to the exact same pattern. The king's son himself led her out to dance, and she danced so gracefully that he admired her more and more. Indeed, at supper, which was fortunately earlier, the admiration quite took away his appetite, for Cinderella herself, with an involuntary shyness, sought out her sisters, placed herself beside them, and offered them all sorts of civil attentions, which coming as they supposed from a stranger, and so magnificent a lady, almost overwhelmed them with delight. While she was talking with them, she heard the clock strike a quarter to twelve, and making a courteous adieu, she adieu to the royal family, she re-entered her carriage and, escorted elderly by the king's son, arrived in safety of her own door. There she found her godmother, who smiled approvingly, and whom she begged permission to go to the second ball, the following night to which the queen had earnestly invited her. While she was talking, the two sisters were heard knocking at the gate, and the fairy godmother vanished, leaving Cinderella sitting in the chimney corner, rubbing her ears, pretending to be very sleepy. Ah, cried the eldest sister maliciously, it has been the most delightful ball, and there was a present, the most beautiful princess I ever saw, who was so exceedingly polite to us both. Was she? said Cinderella indifferently, and who might she be? Nobody knows, though everyone would give their eyes to know, especially the king's son. Indeed, replied Cinderella, a little more interested. I should like to see her, Miss Javiet. That was the eldest sister's name. Will you not let me go tomorrow and lend me your yellow gown that you wear on Sundays? What lends you my yellow gown to a cinder rich? I am not so mad as that. 
at which refusal cinderella did not complain for it was her sister really had lent her the crown and she for it was her sister really had lent her the gown she would have been considerably embarrassed the next night came and the two young ladies richly dressed themselves in different toilets went upon the went upon the ball cinderella more splendidly attired and beautiful than ever followed them shortly after now remember twelve o'clock her grandmother's parting speech and she thought she certainly should but the prince's attention to her was greater than ever than the first meeting and in the delight of listening to his pleasant conversation time slipped unperceived by slipped by unperceived while she was sitting beside him in the lovely alcove and looking at the moon from under the bower of strange blossoms she heard the clock strike for the first stroke of twelve she started up and fled away as lightly as a deer amazed the prince followed but could not catch her indeed he missed his lovely princess altogether and only saw running out of the palace door a little dirty lass whom he had never beheld before and whom he certainly would never have taken the least notice cinderella arrived at home breathless and weary raged and cold without carriage or footman or coachman the only remnant of her past significance being one of the little glass slippers the other one she had dropped in the ballroom as she ran away when the two sisters returned they were full of this strange adventure how the beautiful lady had appeared at the ball more beautiful than ever and they enchanted every one who looked at her and how the clock was striking twelve she had suddenly arisen up and fled through the ballroom disappearing and no one knew how or where and dropping one of her glass slippers behind in her flight how the king's son had remained unconsolable until he chanced to pick up the little glass slipper which he carried away in his pocket and was seen to take it out continually and looking at it affectionately with the air of a man very much in love in fact from his behavior during the remainder of the evening all the court and royal family were convinced that he had become desperately enamored with the wearer of the little glass slipper cinderella listened in silence returning her face to the kitchen fire and perhaps it was that which made her look so rosy but nobody ever noticed or admired her at home so it was not significant to the next morning she went to weary work again just as before a few days after the whole city was attracted by the sight of the herald going around with a little glass slipper in his hand publishing what publishing with a flourish of trumpets that the king's son ordered to be fitted on the foot of every lady in the kingdom and that he wished to marry the lady whom fit it best or whom it would or to whom it and the fellow slipper belonged princesses duchesses countesses and simple gentlewomen all tried it on but being a fairy slipper it fitted nobody and besides nobody could produce its fellow slipper which lay all the time safely in the pocket of cinderella's old linsey gown at last the herald came to the house of the two sisters and though they knew each other knew neither of themselves was the beautiful lady 
and made every attempt to get their clumsy feet into the glass slipper, but in vain. Let me try it on, said Cinderella from the chimney corner. What you, cried the others, bursting in shouts of laughter. Cinderella only smiled and held out her hand. The sisters could not prevent her, since the command was that every young maiden in the city should try on the slipper, in order that no chance might be left untried, for the princess was for the prince was nearly breaking his heart, and his father and mother were afraid that soon that though a prince he would actually die for love of this beautiful unknown lady. So the herald bade Cinderella sit down on a three legged stool in the kitchen, and himself put the slipper on her pretty little foot, which was fitted exactly. She then drew from her pocket the fellow slipper, which she had also put on, and stood up for the touch of magic shoes. All her dress was changed likewise, no longer the poor despised cinder wretch, but the beautiful lady whom the king's son loved. Her sisters recognized her at once, filled with astonishment, mingled with no little alarm. They threw themselves at her feet, begging her pardon for all their former unkindness. She raised and embraced them, and told them she forgave them with all her heart, and only hoped that they would love her always. Then she departed with the herald to the king's palace, and told her the whole story to his majesty, his majesty and the royal family, who were not in the least surprised, for everyone believed in fairies, and everyone belonged to have everyone longed to have a fairy godmother. For the young prince, he found her more lovely and lovable than ever, and insisted upon marrying her immediately. Cinderella never went home again, but she sent for her two sisters to the palace, and with the consent of all parties, married them shortly after to two rich gentlemen of the court. That was it for this episode of the Fortations Life to Tape podcast. I released this podcast on on Friday in the morning, and uh, next week we will continue off with uh, the Junior Classics Volume One Fairy and Wonder Tales. We're about a third, or about two thirds of the way done. So, um, so yeah, so we'll have at least another four episodes of uh, the Junior Classics. So I want to thank everyone for uh, coming by. See everyone next week. Bye bye. Thank you for viewing this Life to Tape video. Life to Tape is part of Fotations, and if you'd like to help, you can visit FotationsDonation.com, where there are ways you can support financially or by donating equipment. If you'd also like to support on social media, that helps out a lot. There's more information on our social media accounts in the links below. Thank you. Bye-bye.